Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. First, we start with the very disappointing news about the cancellation of the Vancouver Formula E race that was scheduled for this summer. Oh, what a drag this is. This was going to be a huge event. The electric race cars uh, racing around False Creek. There was going to be a big festival associated with it. There, they sold thousands of tickets to this thing, and it was canceled uh, the other day. And let's go back in time to when this was announced last year. So much excitement. Listen to this report from Squire Barnes here from Global News. That is a little bit of a sound of the recent Formula E race in Rome and a little bit of the party they had there, as we're not going to have the same here, unfortunately. Let's discuss now with my guest, Tim Haraney. Tim is a race car driver. He is a Formula One IndyCar racing analyst and expert. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Tim, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. What did you? What went through your mind when you heard about this Formula E event in Vancouver getting canceled? Yeah, a little shocking, actually. I kind of had the feeling that this race was going to be uh, good to go and um, would would basically start would basically happen. I think you know one of the things is you know the OSS group, who um, the One Stop Strategy Group, the Montreal-based promoters. Uh, yeah, I, I was actually a little surprised to see that that actually got canceled and to hear it to hear about it why were you surprised why were you surprised yeah usually i think like when any uh let's say country or maybe even a province gets involved with like fia formula e there's never usually any issues that kind of go through with something like this because usually all the i's are dotted and all the all the t's are are crossed so to speak and it's not it's not too often that we really see racing events uh get canceled when they've been in they've been in the works for you know a year or so yeah especially when this was supposed to start uh not that not that long from now and the current tour for these formula e race cars are already happening around the world we, we saw the last race in rome i mean is this is this a, how would you describe this event like this circuit is this like world-class racing yeah actually it is you know formula yeah. e is um a racing circuit that goes all around uh, the world and to have it kind of something like this fall through at the last minute. Yeah. Like I was saying, just a, it's a bit surprising for sure, but I mean, it's um, it's like a big festival almost at the same time with a sporting competition at the middle of it. Right. And so if you think about formula one, if you think about IndyCar, if you think about NASCAR, you know, those are, those are all huge sporting events whenever they put one on and same with formula e it's the exact same thing they're very big uh global events that draw in people from all around the world and yeah it's just a shame that this happened yeah for, for sure are you picking up any kind of intel on on what happened here i mean there's limited information that's been released to the public the city of vancouver is saying that the group that was promoting the event, the one-stop strategy group that you mentioned, that was their decision to pull the plug on this thing. Is that your understanding too? Like why and why did they do that? Any idea? Uh, yeah, from my knowledge of how it all sort of worked out, was I think I believe uh, the organizers in the city were having difficulty coming to terms on certain things. I don't know what those parameters are, um, but then I think Formula E had to come in at the last minute and try and save the event. And unfortunately they were unable to do it as well. And so at the moment it's currently postponed to 2023. However, uh, you know, who knows if that actually goes through. I mean, at this moment, I don't have that answer, but at the same time, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a shame because it would have been, uh, would have been really good for the city of Vancouver to be perfectly honest with you, Mike. I mean, Formula E brings in, you know, crowds from all around the world and to shine a spotlight on our country would have been a good thing. And, um, yeah, it, uh, as a, as a former athlete myself, you know, I, 
I uh, do, um, you know, I do love racing, obviously, and uh, it is it is my job. But at the same time, you know, it's it's a shame to see something like that kind of fall yeah. through because I know all the fans and uh, everyone who really wanted to go and who had already purchased tickets. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's it, it's a shame, but hopefully, you know, they're able to kind of try and put something together for 2023. Yeah. Speaking of Tim Haraney, he's a race car driver. He's a, a racing journalist and analyst talking about the cancellation of the Formula E racing event scheduled for Vancouver a few weeks from now. It has fallen through. It's been canceled now, postponed uh, to next year. What is it with Canada and this Formula E series here? Because it was a few years ago that in Montreal, didn't the same thing happen there? They pulled the plug in a race there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something similar. It's not... It, the thing with racing events and from what i've learned in the past you know sometimes it's not necessarily it it has anything to do with the racing series itself you know some some of the time it actually has a lot to do with the organizer in the city and trying to come to terms on um, agreements i mean it's it is difficult for for both parties to work together sometimes when you're talking about major, major uh, sporting events that are going to be shutting down, you know, parts of your, parts of your infrastructure. So, you know, you have to kind of keep all of those things uh, in the back of your mind Um, for, you know, any sort of racing series, it's usually kind of how it works, right? So you, you're an organizer, you come into Formula E and you say to them, Hey, I've got this great idea. Let's put this race on here. And, you know, we'll take care of everything and we'll get everything signed off and done and we'll coordinate with you and all of this kind of stuff. And, and then we'll put, we'll put on a big show type deal. And that's kind of usually the way some of these events work. And yeah, you know, sometimes they just, <laughs> they don't necessarily always well, work out for the best. I mean, if you go all the way back to like the Vancouver Indie, so that was a yeah. huge event and I used to race in it, you know, almost every year that it was, that it was around in the 2000s and you know unfortunately same thing you know organizers and city and it just kind of didn't really come together for the following year which was i believe 2004 at the time and, you know it was a shame to lose that race because as a driver myself i loved going to vancouver and i loved racing on the streets of streets of vancouver so that was a that was a really tough one for us to lose uh, back in two thousand and four, um, back in the champ car days. But um, yeah, sometimes these things just happen. I've I've been to I was I have attended the Molson Indy a couple of times when that series yeah. was taking place in Vancouver. Yeah, and it was awesome. I had a lot of fun there. I know some of the residents of the city though didn't like the noise. They didn't like the, <laughs> the streets Probably. being shut down, which uh, you know. Vancouver has got a bit of a bad rap sometimes about being a no-fun city that we can't have an event like this without people complaining and politicians kind of caving into the complaints. You know, I usually, I, I, you know, I, I, I visit Vancouver quite, quite often. Like, um, I, I'm, I'm usually in Vancouver a couple times a year. And recently I've been in Vancouver for extended periods of time, up to like six months. And uh, I, I got to tell you, in Canada, it's got to be what it's, it's definitely one of, if not my favorite city. And I always tell people it's like the most beautiful place on the face of the earth when it's a nice sunny day. I don't yeah. think you can beat it. And, um, you know, and I, I've been down and seen, you know, the potential racetrack that they were actually thinking about using. And, uh, you know, just the streets themselves. I mean, I think... They, they, they may have had to do a bit of work. Now, this is just from my perspective, looking at the street itself where they were going to be racing. I mean, it, it looked pretty rough. I'm not too sure you, you could have had a Formula car racing on there. I think they may have needed to do a little bit of reconfiguration with the pavement mm. because it just, uh, it's, just, it's kind of rough down that area in terms of the, the street itself. And... Um, yeah, I just don't know if a formula car would be able to ride okay. over all the bumps and everything that's down there. So they, they may have had to do a little bit of work down there at okay. the same time. And yeah, then you factor in like it takes off anywhere from, you know, 90, 60 to 90 days to actually build a street circuit. So these are all little things I think also need to be taken into consideration as well. And that's that's basically from my perspective, though. 
Hopefully it happens next year. Tim, thanks for coming on yeah. to talk about it today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Uh, we're in the home stretch here now of the Vancouver Colchena by-election. Uh, this is a key by-election in our province here. Voting day is April 30th, which is this Saturday. Kevin Falcon, the new leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, He's running for a seat in the B.C. legislature. He's opposed by several other opponents, including a Dr. Jeanette Ash, who is the NDP candidate in the riding. Now, let's not kid ourselves. This should be uh, a win for Falcon here. This is a, usually a safe liberal seat. It's the former seat held by Andrew Wilkinson, the former B.C. liberal leader. He stepped aside for Falcon here, and he won that seat pretty handily last time. So Falcon should win this. He should win it on Saturday, but you just—you never know in by-elections. You know, they usually got a low turnout. Strange things can happen. The NDP we were running hard here uh, against Falcon for sure. We had a debate on the show on Friday between Falcon and Jeanette Ash, the NDP candidate. Got pretty wild at times. It was—it uh, was—it was a real humdinger of a debate. I'll tell you. Have a listen to this. This is Falcon versus Jeanette Ash here sparring about housing costs in Vancouver. Here's how it sounded on Friday. When I retired from public life in 2012, the average price of a townhome was 450000 Today, under the NDP, it's over a million dollars. So if results matter at all, they're getting the worst possible results, and excuses don't matter. Going back and talking about, you know, my record or whatever from 20 years ago is just a way they avoid talking about their record. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up your record because that's what you're running on. You're running on your record, so we have to talk about your record. And we know what your record is. You sided with speculators, and you're continuing to do that, and they benefit from high housing prices. Okay, that was uh, Jeanette Ash, the NDP candidate, versus Kevin Falcon, the Liberal candidate in Vancouver, Quilchenna. Let's check in with Wendy Hayko now. She is the Green Party candidate in this by-election, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Wendy, thank you very much for coming on today. Hey, thank you for having me. You bet. I appreciate your time here. What did you think of that exchange we just listened to there, Falcon versus Jeanette Ash, your opponents there sparring over housing prices? What went through your mind when you listened to that? Um, I think that that sounded a lot like two sides of the same coin, arguing about which side's shinier. Um, both the NDP and the Liberals tend to think of housing as a commodity, and in the Green Party, we think that it very much is part of our human rights. Shelter is something that everyone should be able to afford and live safely in. Yeah, how do you think it should be solved? I mean, there's been a lot of people who put ideas on the table with how to solve this affordability crisis in real estate. What's the Green Party's prescription for it? Um, we have a two-pronged approach for that. We have a immediate solution to build more supply with nonprofit and cooperative housing, and then uh, to take a longer-term approach and work with all of the parties that are involved in a, in a housing um, situation then to solve the systemic and root cause issues that have really caused that gap between the average Canadian income and the average Canadian house. Yeah, what, what do you think about, there's been some proposals to put a tax on home equity. So if you're sitting on a mountain of money, maybe you bought a home, you're a retired boomer, you got a house that's worth $2 million. If it's your primary residence, there's a there's no capital gains tax and you sell that home. Do you think there should be a tax on those homes? Use the money to build affordable housing? I think that we have, um, we've been trying tax first approaches um, and it's not worked. I mean, the housing market is continuing to spiral out of control. Um, affordability is a real crisis and taxation may certainly be part of the answer, but it's not going to be the whole answer. And I think bringing in that panel of experts and those people with lived experience something that the Green Party is really good at and something that I have, you know, 20 years professional experience doing and finding collaborative solutions to problems that address the root cause. I think that's uh, an approach we need to take to the housing crisis. Speaking of Wendy Hayko, she is the Green Party candidate, Vancouver Colchana by-election, which is this Saturday. Hey, Wendy, let me play another clip here for you from our uh, the panel we had on Friday show. So this is Kevin Falcon, once again, the Liberal leader, your opponent, uh, debating Jeanette Ash, the NDP candidate. And here they are uh, arguing about cutting taxes and cutting government spending. Then I'll get your thoughts. Have a listen. The last time Kevin Falcon was in power, he showed us who he is. 
He cut funding that supported sexual assault survivors. He cut hundreds of millions to funding to health authorities, forcing them to reduce mental health and addiction services. People are still living with the damage caused by those cuts. The BCNDP is making progress on fixing that damage by investing in people and the services they depend on. Kevin, you can try to change your story, but you can't change your record. Here's the bottom line. BC has the highest overdose death rates in the history of the province of British Columbia. Street crime and disorder has gotten worse every single year, especially in Vancouver. We've got the highest housing prices in North America, third highest on the planet. We've got the highest gas prices in North America. Everything works against folks that are just trying to make ends meet. I think it's about results. That's what we'll do when I get back in power and become premier of this province. Okay, as Kevin Falcon there, the B.C. Liberal leader, and Jeanette Ash, his NDP opponent in this Saturday's by-election in Vancouver, Colchena. Speaking to Wendy Hako, she's the Green Party candidate there. Wendy, what are your thoughts on, you heard Falcon there defending the the previous Liberal government's record there and cutting taxes. This has been a a big part of the debate here in this by-election. What are your thoughts on it? We're focused on on supporting a vibrant economy and a vibrant community, um, and there there should be a multi pronged approach to that. There should be uh, a multitude of methods, but definitely one of those methods should be um, taking the oil and gas subsidies that are currently being directed to supporting you know multinational and international organizations and really bringing those back in to support our local economies and have a thriving green economy um, and reduce those emissions. There, there are a number of hidden crises in the Vancouver Quilchena riding that you know I know as because I'm a member there. Um, I've lived in that riding for years now, and really the toxic drug supply is, is a hidden crisis. There, there is a housing crisis, even in, in uh, the Vancouver Quilchena riding. And being able to address those with a multi-pronged and consensus-driven building solutions across party lines and with actors and factors outside of government, with nonprofit, with local government, with community leaders and elders, that's how you really solve those problems and get to the root issue. You've made climate change a big part of your campaign in the riding. And we've talked a lot about that on the show. We saw, we continue to see the, the protests happen around old growth logging, greenhouse gas emissions. We saw protesters blockade the Ironworkers Bridge again, again this morning. We saw block, blockade in that same bridge last, last week. Mm-hmm. What do you think? We, we've also heard about, uh, there are hunger strikers. People have gone on hunger strike in support of old growth, old growth logging reform in BC. What do you think of that? Do you support those protests? I think protest is an important part of our democratic process, um, and it lets people know about the issues. And certainly when I've been out knocking on doors in the riding and speaking to people, um, there are a lot of people who, who are looking at these protests and saying, you know, these are real issues. These are our chickens are coming home to roost, and it, it's time to take action to make sure that we have a voice in government that is able to lead us to solutions to the climate crisis. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm speaking to different people than you, but you know, when I speak to people who have been stuck in traffic jams from bridge blockades or blockading the Trans Canada Highway, uh, you know, I don't, I don't hear a whole lot of sympathy with people who are blocking the roads like that. Like even people who are worried about climate change will tell me that I don't appreciate having roads and bridges blocked when I'm just trying to get to work or I'm trying to take my kid to the doctor. You're hearing otherwise? You, th- you think people support these these blockades? I think people support old growth forests and the biodiversity and the carbon capture that those forests create for us. Uh, I'm hearing that people support a change in how we handle and regulate our forestry industry, in how we handle and regulate oil and gas, and redirecting those subsidies to a supporting a vibrant and green economy. Yeah. What, what would you? What would a Green Party government do on uh, on this file? Like, would you guys jack up the carbon tax a lot higher? Taxation um, may be part of the solution. Um, I think a big part of it is going to come initially from redirecting those subsidies 
We're seeing, you know, billions and billions of dollars um, supporting the oil and gas industry. And we can support local green economic activities that will, you know, be of benefit to all British Columbians and drive our economy without killing the planet. Well, the Vancouver Colchena by-election, it is this Saturday. Kevin Falcon, the new Liberal leader running for a seat in the legislature. Jeanette Ash is his NDP opponent. Wendy Hako is my guest this morning. She is the Green Party candidate in the riding. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Jim and Burnaby. Hi, Jim. What do you think? Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very concerned because I'm hearing Wendy... Uh, repeat the myth of the environmentalists on the left saying that old growth forests are sequestering carbon. That's not true. In fact, the opposite is true. Over, I think it's 70% of the old growth forests in BC are already protected. And that's wonderful. That's a wonderful thing for diversity, biodiversity, as she says. But there is nothing healthier for wildlife and the environment and generating oxygen than a healthy growing forest. And uh, old growth decay and actually release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So it was. Now, so you're saying it, you're saying what? So you're saying it's, uh, second growth is better for carbon sequestration. Like if you if you log and then replant. Is that your point? Exactly. And yeah, Wendy, Wendy, what do you say, Wendy, what do you say to that? Let's get Wendy's response to it. Certainly, um, replanting does save some carbon. Um, Tim, you're absolutely right there. The thing to remember, though, is the way that we're replanting right now is really focused on um, on single species replanting. And what we know from looking at the intense biodiversity in the old growth forest is that we get better carbon capture when we've got a complex biodiversity. So the way that we're doing replanting right now does need to, to be looked at if we want to optimize it for carbon capture. Let's go back to the phone lines. Roy on the line in New West. Hi, Roy, go ahead. Hi, yeah, you know, I I sympathize with the protesters. I agree, but protest at City Hall, protest at the Parliament buildings. I think the city of Vancouver and the surrounding uh, cities should go together and either get a water cannon-type truck to hose these people down, (laughs) <laughs> or get a street cleaning truck like they used to have at the end of the parade, where you hose them down. Okay, well that sounds and, and that sounds a on. little well. Okay, well I don't know. That sounds a little e- extreme, but you know when people are blocking a bridge, you're trying to get to work. You're trying to get a sick kid to a doctor appointment. I mean, who knows what it could be? That is. Uh, that is something that could be really annoying. I mean, we saw people, we saw tempers boil over there the other day on Thursday morning. You saw the videos of people getting out of their cars, dragging people from the side of the road. You know, so Wendy, I mean, like, you know, my point earlier was there may even be people who get stuck in these traffic jams behind these blockades who may be very sympathetic to the cause of these protests. But man, when, when you start inconveniencing people directly, just trying to go about their own lives, I'm not sure it draws support to your cause, but your thoughts. Thanks for asking. Um, protests are complicated, and that that complication, that immediate impact, is is something that that we need to stop and look at because that happens in all of our political discourse. Right? We we have problems now that we run into because of short term thinking. Um, and that's that's something that that's one of the reasons why I'm in this race today, Mike, is really because I see a need for longer term thinking that I see that, yes, we have these short term problems that we need to overcome. Like, you know, I just want to get to work today and I just need to make sure that I've got this paycheck. But what we also do need to do is to be looking at those longer term issues. We need to be looking at viable ways that we can continue to thrive. Um, in this planet, in our communities, that we can have strong and thriving communities in Vancouver, Quilchena, and all around the province. Okay, I'll squeeze in one more call and talk to Mike and Burnaby. Mike, you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. Hi. 
love, love the show, Mike. I'm from Alberta, and I absolutely love your show. Um, Zane and his in-the-basement mother-living people, if they were in front of my vehicle and they blocked the vehicle, I would tend to be the same way as Thursday. I would physically remove them. They are not winning the hearts and minds. There's a better way to protest than what they're doing. They're just upsetting people. Okay, Mike, thank you very much for the call. Well, the the police, and we'll, I'll be speaking to a representative of the Vancouver Police Department about this on the show today, and I know they do not encourage people to take the law into their own hands when they're confronted in a situation like this. Wendy, thank you for taking the time to come on today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, we spoke earlier today uh, about the blockade on the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge again this morning. Yeah, they did it again. Protesters blocking that busy bridge at rush hour this morning. Police responding very quickly to move it aside. But, man, it caused a traffic backup there. Let's check in with Sergeant Steve Addison now, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Sergeant Addison, thank you for coming on today. Hey, Mike. Are you guys keeping a closer eye on these protesters, especially when they try to block these bridges? For sure. There's obviously not a lot of uh, tolerance in the public for these types of protests. We're, you know, we're all for um, people's right to peacefully assemble, to protest, to express their views, and quite often, uh, in fact, hundreds of times every year, we'll help to facilitate peaceful and lawful protests. But what we're seeing uh, on bridges and highways, uh, major pieces of infrastructure, they're not, these are not lawful protests. Um, these are people engaging in unsafe behavior that inconveniences a lot of people, um, uh, limits people's ability to move around the city, uh, limits the ability of first responders, whether it be police, fire, or ambulances to move around. And when they happen on major pieces of infrastructure, we're going to move quickly like we did today to move in and to arrest people. Today we arrested one person, a 37-year-old woman who tried to block traffic. She's off to jail. We'll recommend charges of uh, mischief and, and blocking a roadway against her. And we'll continue to do this as these protests continue because, quite frankly, um, there's uh, very little tolerance in the public for it, and it's unsafe and illegal behavior. Did you guys have any advance uh, intelligence on this happening? It seemed like police moved in there particularly quickly there this morning. I don't expect yeah. you to tell me all your secrets here, but, you know... There, there's no secret, Mike. We're ready to go. We know these are happening. Um, quite often when we have protest groups that are preparing to, to march or protest, we'll communicate with them ahead of time. Often groups will talk to us about what their plans are so that we can help to facilitate a peaceful protest. Uh, what we've been seeing lately with these groups on the highway and on the bridges is um, their, uh, their, their aimed intention is to be disruptive, to block traffic, um, to create disorder. And um, we have officers ready. Uh, we attempt to negotiate with them. We encourage them to leave. Uh, we give them an opportunity to leave. And today, a number of people did uh, leave the roadway. Um, those who stay, today it was one person. Uh, last week, it was a couple more. Um, they're choosing to be arrested, and, and uh, that's exactly what we did. And that's How what do we'll you continue got to do. How do you deal with some of these tactics that are being employed? Like, I've seen people who set up you know, structures in the middle of intersections, pyramids or ladders, and then they go up there, making it as difficult as possible for police to remove them. We hear about people who are super gluing themselves to the road. How do you deal with that? Like when you show up and somebody's super glued to the bridge, how do you deal with that? Yeah, we, we work quite closely with our partners, uh, mostly at uh, Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services. So if we've got somebody on a structure, they've got a device um, uh, extraction team that can come in and literally it's a matter of cutting them down or removing them. We'll see people perched on top of ladders. Um, we have to make sure that we're very safe when we take them down. If they're glued to roadways, we have ways of uh, removing themselves. So um, as these protests are continuing. Uh, the protesters are becoming, um, uh, uh, um, they're using more creative ways to try to cause disruption. They're being more sneaky and we're, we're having to respond in kind. Um, and it yeah. does take some time to work through it. So we, we appreciate the patience because we know it's a, such an inconvenience for people. We appreciate the, appreciate the patience of all the road users while we, while we work through this. Right, and we saw last week tempers boil over and some drivers actually get out of their vehicles and start taking matters into their own hands and dragging protesters away to the side of the bridge. I assume the VPD does not recommend that. 
No, of course not. We don't recommend that. Uh, at the same time, we understand uh, that people are getting frustrated and we can see how that would happen, but we don't encourage people to do that. Um, we're there. Let us do our jobs. Um, we're trained to do it and and, uh, and, and we're well practiced in doing it. So uh, we don't want people to get involved. We don't want vigilantism. We don't want people getting assaulted. So um, yeah. let's just keep encouraging people to be patient and, uh, and we appreciate the patience while we work through these situations. Speaking to Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department. Sergeant, let me ask you about another topic in the news, and that is the thin blue line patch that some police officers wear on their uniforms. This is the subject of a recent ruling at, from the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner. For people who don't know, the thin blue line patch shows a Canadian flag with a thin blue line running through it. Some officers choose to wear it on their uniform. It is controversial. Steve, just before I get your thoughts on it, let's have a listen to this report and this issue here. This is from Global News reporter Catherine Urquhart, then I'll get your thoughts. Within policing communities across North America, the thin blue line has long been a symbol of support for one another. It really depicts the line that police officers walk every day, um, keeping society free from chaos. But critics say the symbol ignores the larger issue of police violence against racialized communities and promotes an us-versus-them mentality. Okay, that report from Catherine Urquhart. Sergeant Steve Addison, are Vancouver police officers allowed to wear this thin blue line patch on their uniform? So, we, yeah, Mike, we do have a, um, a small, a certain number of police officers who wear it. Uh, some wear it on their uniform. Some will wear it under the uniform, maybe on their Kevlar vest underneath, under the Velcro. Um, I can't tell you exactly how many uh, do it. it. However, it is a number. Um, we have a detailed dress and deportment policy, um, but we also do allow uh, a certain amount of leeway in that policy for officers um, to uh, some are wearing a, a thin blue line patch, some will wear pride pins, some wear orange ribbons to memorialize residential school victims. Uh, the Moose Hide campaign, uh, which is a, a pin that officers can wear, which represents uh, uh, ending violence against uh, women and children. So while the thin blue line patch to the officers who wear it, it's a memorial patch with deep-rooted meaning to fallen officers. Um, it's something that some officers choose to wear, promotes remembrance and solidarity and camaraderie. And it really does have a deep-rooted meaning for the officers that wear it. But we also recognize that in society, some symbols have different meanings for different people, depending on... And, and how you view a symbol will largely depend on your personal life experience and your ideological disposition. So there's room for a measured and reasonable discussion on the topic. And that's what uh, the police board, the Vancouver police board is embarking on now. What do you say to, like, I take your point that police officers who wear this patch say it's in honor of fallen officers who've been killed in the line of duty or injured. But then you have other people like, like uh, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip from the Union of BC Indian Chiefs who said this week that he believes that that thin blue line patch is a symbol of like white supremacy or racism of police against uh, indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Like people have got different opinions on what this patch Absolutely. means, right? Like what do you say to that? Yeah, so for the police officers who wear it, I can tell you uh, without a doubt, um, it's pure and simple, um, a memorial patch. Uh, that recognizes fallen officers. And if they look to it, so in, in Vancouver, we've had 16 officers killed in the line of duty since 1886. The last one was Larry Young in February of, of uh, 1987. Um, the officers who wear the patch in Vancouver wear it to memorialize the officers who came before them, the ones who made the ultimate sacrifice. And if they look at it, when they put it on, whether it's on their uniform or under the uniform, and it reminds them to be safe, to be cautious, to protect their brother or sister officers from harm, to get home safely, then they'll argue, what's the harm in doing it if it makes them feel good? That said, though, Mike, we also recognize that it has different meanings for different people. We're alive to that. We want to hear those community concerns. And the Vancouver Police Board is is embarking right now on a process to better understand the meaning of that symbol, not just to police officers, but to everybody in the community so that a reasonable and measured and informed conversation can take place.
Okay, yeah, because this was the subject of a complaint that went to the uh, police uh, conduct, misconduct board, and it was from someone who saw an officer wearing a thin blue line patch at a uh, a demonstration in Vancouver last year, mm-hmm. and there was a complaint that went to the office of the pl- police complaint commissioner about this patch on this officer's uniform. So the status of that now is that the patch is under review. Is that yeah, fair so to that's say? A service or yeah. policy complaint that went to the Vancouver Police Board and it was discussed at length at the Vancouver Police Board uh, last week, and it's the police board's um, decision that they've made to um, to seek out more information, essentially, um, to uh, obtain. And I don't want to speak for the Vancouver Police Board because uh, it's it's a yeah. separate entity from the Vancouver Police Department. Um, but the the police board has uh, has decided to seek more information, to do some more consultation. Um, uh, not only internally, but with other uh, police boards, um, to hopefully come up with a reasonable and informed decision that meets everybody's needs and satisfies everybody. That might not be possible to do. It might be difficult to do. But w- what it appears that they're doing is trying to have a reasonable and measured conversation about um, a, sim- a symbol that means a lot of things uh, to a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, to the police officers, it's a memorial um, patch. To others, it has a different meaning. Yeah, it was a difficult issue for sure. Uh, Steve, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Take care. Here we go now with the continuing blockades on roads, highways, and bridges by environmental protesters. They did it again today on the Iron Workers Bridge. One person arrested there. One protester super glued herself to the bridge. And this seems to be happening more frequently. Temperature, uh, tempers really running short last week on the iron workers when some drivers actually got out of their vehicles, started dragging some of these protesters aside. Police saying, don't do that. Don't take the law into your own hands. The cops responding very quickly here this morning uh, to move protesters aside on the iron workers still caused a huge traffic jam, though, right at rush hour. Now, we've talked about this on the show before. I've, we've had some debates, uh, really great debates on this on the show, including with Zane Hack. Now, this guy is the leader of these blockades, one of them. Here's what he said to me last week about why they're doing this. We've been writing letters for 30 years. We've been signing petitions for 30 years. We've been doing marches for 30 years, and nothing has happened, right? Carbon emissions have gone up by 60%, and our demand is very minor, and we're nonviolently disrupting the public. By engage- and in doing so, we're engaging the public in the debate that we're literally faced with the annihilation of the human race. Okay, so they say they're engaging the public in this debate. I think they're ticking the public off and driving people away from supporting their cause. That's my take on it. Let's find out what Bill Thielman thinks. Bill's a political commentator. He's a communications consultant. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Bill. Hey, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Bill, you've operated and run a lot of public campaigns over the years here in British Columbia. What do you think of these tactics, blocking roads and bridges, to make your point? They're crazy. Honestly, they're just crazy. There's no way around it. I've seen this before. We've seen it here in Vancouver and other parts of the, the other parts of the country as well. Uh, we saw the Ottawa blockade. Obviously, that was a real big PR success. Um, these folks are not very creative. Clearly, I mean, you know, I've been involved in dozens and dozens of protests and helped organize with some of my clients myself. I've occupied the president of the University of BC's office, but the only person inconvenienced was the president. Um, you know, really, I, if once you start stopping people from going about their business, including, as we saw in some of Global uh, TV's coverage this past weekend, uh, there's one guy with a, a sick kid in his car trying to take him to a doctor or a hospital or something. I mean, y- yeah. you, can, you can be pretty, you have to be pretty self-righteous and pretty so-called woke to think that stopping a kid from having medical care is going to get the government of BC to stop logging old growth forests. That is not the way it works. So, you know, and one of the things, Mike, that I think is ironic is that many of the people driving or trying to drive across the uh, Iron Workers Memorial Bridge or uh, other roadways that these folks have blocked are probably supporters or, or would be supporters of, uh, of limiting or stopping old growth logging. And yet these tactics alienate their potential supporters. It might be, it might be 25, 35% of those who are on those roads 
possibly driving their EVs, their electric vehicles, would say right on if it was not blocking their way. But once you start doing stuff like that, people really question the tactics, and it goes from the tactics to the actual motivation of these groups because they don't seem to care about you as an ordinary citizen. They seem to only care about their ideological cause, and they they look more and more extreme, which alienates people. Speaking of extreme, we're seeing more and more of these type of extreme tactics at different ends of the political spectrum in some ways. Like you mentioned the truck blockades, and we see, we saw truckers blockade high, highways and bridges mm-hmm. and border crossings, for example. Kind of the other extreme, the other end of the political spectrum, but similar tactics. Do you see a correlation there? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the challenges is that, uh, I mean, there's no question that media play a role. This is about getting media. It isn't about the 100 or 400 or 500 motorists who are stuck behind a blockade. It's about getting on the global TV news, getting on your show and other shows. And so that they're they're doing this, but it's, it's a classic um, sort of protest conundrum. You, you have to do something that gets media attention to get your message out because you don't have the money to run, you know, big ad campaigns like some uh, like an oil company or a forest company might do. But at the same time, if you do something that's so disruptive and so alienating, you actually lose support when people see it on TV. I, I was like, when I saw the last one with them crazy gluing their hands on the road, first of all, I thought it was like kind of insane. I would never, never tell anyone to do that. But secondly, I just thought this is, this is just uh, annoying and, and aggravating. And I hope I don't get stuck behind some, some lunatics with glue on their hands. One of the things that Zane Hack told me was he often compares this campaign to the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s. And he will say, well, you know, Martin Luther King uh, marched on the roads in, in the southern U.S. And, and angered a lot of people, too. But he, he won in the end. Here's, here's what he had to say about what their ultimate objective is here. Have a listen to this and I'll get your thoughts. Why forcing it? By forcing it, by filling up the prison. That's our plan. Okay, our let plan me, okay, is let me to go fill to up Bill. the prisons. Our plan is to fill up the prisons. They want to be arrested. Your thoughts? Well, it's fair enough if you want to engage in civil disobedience and you're willing to pay the price of a jail a sentence. Uh, probably that means you'd probably be banned from traveling to the United States and other countries. Uh, and certainly there's a long history of civil disobedience. But uh, Mohandas Gandhi and Martin Luther King... Uh, did things which were visible, obvious, and uh, mass movements, too. This wasn't like yeah. eight, eight people gluing themselves to a road. Martin Luther King led thousands of people on marches, led thousands right. of people to, to take actions, and, and uh, were brutally beaten by police in the United States South. Were, were, the people were being killed, shot, lynched. Uh, African Americans were being killed on a regular basis. This is not that in, in any way, and I think it's a bit... Um, a bit uh, galling to, I think, to the to the memory of people who are civil rights activists to compare yourself with that uh, by gluing your hands well, onto the road. One thing they did achieve, Bill, was they did get a meeting last week with the environment minister, George Heyman. He met with some of the leaders of these protests on Friday in his office, and we have some audio from that meeting I'm going to play here. And I'll get your thoughts. Now, you're going to hear some of the protest leaders and activists here uh, discussing with Heyman. They wanted him to publicly declare his support for their cause, including from in support for hunger strikers that are striking uh, to stop old growth logging in B.C. And listen carefully to George Heyman's response here in this audio. Let's have a listen. I'm not prepared to make that commitment today, and I, that's not because I'm not very concerned about what's happening and the, um, uh, the threat to their health that uh, their decision is putting them under, and I understand what's at the root of uh, the decision, what they're demanding, and, and their concern about old growth. I think, frankly, one of the problems is that uh, people regularly take actions that are extreme, uh, demanding that, uh, that ministers meet with them. And they choose to do that. I'm not saying the issue isn't serious or the threat to their health isn't serious. It is a door, I think, for um, others to regularly do something similar. That that creates a a very awkward situation, frankly, for uh, members of government. Okay, George Heyman there speaking in a meeting on Friday with some of these protest leaders, speaking to Bill Thielman about the blockades we saw again today on the Iron Workers Bridge. And... One of their demands, Bill, is they wanted 
they wanted the forest minister, Katrine Conroy, to do a public meeting with these hunger strikers. And you heard Heyman say there that he thinks that th- these are extreme demands. It could it could spark copycat type protests if they give into it, and it puts government in an awkward position. Like the, the government's not going to cave into this type of pressure. Your thoughts? No, they're not going to. But I think George Heyman made a very good point there because if they did then everyone and their dog who had an issue would say, all i got to do is crazy glue myself to the Broad Street Bridge or the Granville Bridge or wherever, and uh, I'll, I'll get the minister to call me and meet with me and accept my demands. I mean, you can't do that kind of, uh, you can't take that kind of a position in government. So what it actually does in many ways is it forces the government to not do what you want as the protest group, uh, because it would be too too damaging to the government publicly and politically if they were to take that action. So it's, it's literally... Yeah. And I think George Heyman was kindly kind of pointing it out to them, and they obviously didn't get it because they're out in the road today. Uh, th- these kind of uh, actions make it harder for the government to consider the demands that they're making. As we continue talking about the road blockades with my guest, Bill Tillman, he thinks this is backfiring on the protesters. Let's see what you think. Doug in Richmond on the line. Hey, Doug, go ahead. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm good. What do you think? Uh, I have a solution for everybody here. Uh, what we do is challenge the UBC engineers to see how many protesters you can fit in a Volkswagen, then suspend that Volkswagen from underneath the bridge deck. As the commuters get free traffic, no blockage, and they get all the media attention they want, and the UBC guys get to hang their Volkswagen. Okay, Doug, thank you for the call. If we talk, if we want to talk seriously about this, like I've had other callers phone in earlier, Bill, who say like, you know, round them all up and throw them in jail. Well, a lot of them have been charged, right? Some of them have been in jail. The thing is, they just keep coming back. Your thoughts? Well, you know, if they have the wherewithal and the the stamina to go into and be processed through the court system and jailed and have a criminal record, you know, I, I admire their commitment, but they're still doing the wrong thing. Like, they're not doing anything creative. They're just being disruptive. They're not... The, the media stories are negative. We're doing a whole show about how bad a tactic this is. That is not working. And, you know, filling up the prisons, you'd need thousands of people. We saw... I think about 900 people arrested at Clackwood Sound and, and carted off to jail. Yeah. I mean, these guys are, you know, rank amateurs compared to Clackwood Sound. And ultimately, you know, one of the points that I've made over the years is the government that was in power during the Clackwood Sound protest, which was the BCNDP, was reelected in the next election. So they didn't they didn't change the government. And if they had, I think the the government that would have followed would have been even more prologging. So, but didn't but didn't they win the fight over Clackwood? They, they they won part of the fight. They there were some significant changes in the years they had, but you know, here we are today. Like if uh, if they'd won the entire battle, I don't think we'd see protesters on the road. And the reality is there's always going to be a tension between logging and forestry uh, practices and and forests and uh, environmentalists and some of whom are on the extreme side. But, you know, you look back, Sapporo Berman and uh, the, the group that was there, they started doing, um, around the Great Bear Rainforest, they started doing um, marketing protests where they were targeting yeah. big firms that were buying paper that was being produced by, by old growth or other timber that they thought was under threat. That was a much more powerful action than anything that these protesters have done. Well, also, the other thing that occurred to me is, and I covered those Clockwood protests way mm-hmm. back in the in the 90s, like, that was a, a very remote logging road on Vancouver Island. We're not talking about the, you know, the Iron Workers Bridge mm-hmm. and inconveniencing people just trying to go about their daily lives. I mean, it was a very remote bri- road they were blocking in the yeah, wilderness. And they were, I mean, they, although, you know, to be fair to the loggers and forestry workers, they were really put out of work by yes, some of these yes. protests. And so then we had legal actions against the organizers for taking away people's livelihoods. I, I, and I think that backfires too. I think if you if you block people's ability to do their job, whether it's on a road or, or um, like on a highway or a bridge or on a logging yeah. road, you are, you are courting trouble for sure. Let's go to Ron on the line in Richmond. Hi, Ron, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I think the problem that we have here is that we just have too many groups protesting. So we have protester fatigue. You know, we have the pipeline guys, we have indigenous protesters, we have save old growth forests. Uh, we, we have so many different protests, the bicycle people and all kinds of things. We're just getting tired of it. And although I agree that and some of these people have good issues that they're protesting, I don't doubt that, but you don't have the right to prevent me 
from going about my legitimate business. You can protest all you want, but don't stop me from going to work or going to a doctor's appointment. And if you do, I should have the right to physically do something about it to you. Okay, Ron, thanks for the call. Let's squeeze a couple more in here while we have the chance. Dale on the line in Surrey. Hi, Dale. Go ahead. How you doing? I agree with what that last fellow said as well, that I think the police should be able to come in and arrest them right off the hop, put them in jail for a month minimum. They wouldn't think twice again if they'd been to jail, trust me. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they would be able to keep them in jail for a month once they get in front of a judge. Maybe if they're a repeat offender. Rick and Mission. Hi, Rick. What do you think? You have thirty seconds. Hello. Yeah, Rick. You got thirty seconds. Go ahead. Oh well, I'm surprised that you know why they resort to these means of going to blockade things. Like you know, isn't it as simple as just calling you the media and using social media to get their point across? I mean, like that woman said earlier, they're just trying to infuriate people. I mean, the goal is to get your awareness of your cause out. And then the problem is, like you said, some of these people have been arrested multiple times. Like how many, this is the courts are, are letting okay. these people back out and we need to be stiffer on, on criminals and, and everything else. Thanks a lot for the call. Hey, Bill, we got 20 seconds here. What do you think would be a better way for them to run a campaign? Well, it should be creative. It should be something that would actually give a smile to the face of of motorists and people who are seeing it on TV, and it should be irresistible to TV and other media to report on it. Or it should disrupt uh, a much narrower, narrower band of of those involved in the industry. Bill, thanks for coming on today. Mike. Let's talk EVs now. Electric vehicles becoming more popular, and why not with these sky-high gas prices? More people going electric or at least thinking about it. Now, one of the big concerns, though, with an EV, range anxiety. Will my battery last long enough to get where I want to go? If I do have to stop for a charge, how long will it take to charge that battery to get where I want to go. Well, if you listen to the claims of the recharging times from the EV manufacturers, oh man, they sound great. So check this out. The Kia EV6, 4.5 minute charge for 100 kilometers of driving range. Wow. Just four and a half minutes. Wow. It takes longer to gas up your car. How about the BMW i6? 100 kilometer range, just six minutes at a high power charging station. This all sounds great. Does it work in reality though? Let's discuss now with my guest, Mark Richardson, the driving writer at the Globe and Mail. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks a lot for coming on. Mark just wrote a great article about this for the Globe and Mail. Okay, Mark, I know you've tested some of these vehicles. Do the, does the reality match up with the claims from the manufacturers? I have no idea, Mike. I've never been able to find a charger that will charge at the speed that the manufacturers say they should be able to. I, I've tried. <laughs> I've plugged into lots of chargers. I don't know if it's a problem with the car or the chargers or the what, uh, but it's nowhere close. Okay, that's because what some of these claims for charging times are based on, what are they called, high-power charging stations? Yeah, and, and you know what? I'm quite sure that it is true. Uh, the government goes through this stuff and makes sure that you, you can't make a false advertising claim. This is a, a global standard that companies like Hyundai and Kia and BMW and Tesla and all of those people make. I'm quite sure it is true that if you charge it at the optimal conditions uh, at a station that is capable of handling it, that's, that they're quite correct. But I've never come close to this. And, I mean, I've been just been driving through the winter in a whole bunch of different cars, electrical cars, and I'm sorry, but winter takes it right out of a battery as well, right? Yeah, right, okay. Okay, I loved your article on this in the Globe and Mail. I highly recommend it to the listeners. You checked out some of these vehicles. So let's talk about the Kia EV6. So this is the one, Mark, that claimed that you could go 100 clicks on a four-and-a-half-minute charge. What did you yeah. find out when you drove it? Well, bear in mind that the, that the Kia EV6 is basically the same car at the moment as well as the Hyundai Ioniq 5. They're built on the same platform. They use basically the same batteries. It's the same. I mean, the two companies are owned by the same people in Korea. So it's, we're talking about the same car really with this. Okay. And they told me, yeah, it'll go 400 and something kilometers. Uh, and I needed to drive. I live in Coburg, Ontario. I need to drive all the way to Ottawa 
and then come back home again. And normally in the summertime, I could probably do that with the range that they say for the EV6, which is like 420 or something like that kilometers. Um, but in the wintertime, it knocked it right down to 300 kilometers. I mean, you get in the car, you turn it on, and it tells you your range is, and it says 300 kilometers with 100% charge. So I knew that I was going to have to stop somewhere along the way to, in Austin, on the way to Ottawa just to top it up, right? But I thought, hey, it'll take me four and a half minutes because I only need another 100, uh, 100 kilometers of range. And I just couldn't find anywhere to give me anything like that. I tried probably eight different charges, different manufacturers. Some of them were broken. Some of them weren't working correctly. Some of them were presumably working correctly. But because it was a little colder, it was just below freezing, uh, they they were going really slow. So basically, Mike, it took me, um, I don't know, it took me 40 minutes to get a 170-kilometer charge to get mm. to Ottawa. And I thought it was going to take me less than 10 minutes, right? I thought I was going to be able to stop, get a cup of coffee, maybe go to the washroom, and just be on my way. But it was nothing like that. Okay. Now, is the reason for that is because the charging stations that you were able to access are, are not these superpower, high, high, supercharged, high-power power charging stations? Yeah, they are. They yeah. are. That's what's, really, that's what's really worrisome about this, because... I mean, we go on about all the fast charging stations across the country, and they say um, the government tells us there are 12,000 public charging stations, and there are the, the level three stations, there are something like 3,000 of these stations, but they don't necessarily have to be the very fastest. Level three is uh, the ones that chuck the most amount of power into your car at the fastest times, but there's still graduations to these things, right? So... The very, very, very fastest ones are the ones that can go at 350 kilowatts. Petro-Canada has that. Electrify Canada has that. Even Tesla is, is not quite at 350, I don't think. They top out about 250. Um, but it's very, very fast. And the, they're ramming enough power into your car. Basically, somebody told me once to power a shopping mall in like five minutes. Oh, wow. But the trouble is that I plugged into a 350-kilowatt uh, charging station at uh, about zero degrees, and it charged me at 60 kilowatts. And I thought, well, what's going on? Why isn't it charging me at 350? Because my Kia EV6 is capable of taking that charge. But no, apparently when it's a bit cold, it won't take anything like that charge. It won't be nearly so fast. Not only do I have less range, but it takes me a lot longer to charge the thing up. Okay, that's disappointing to hear. I'm speaking to Mark Richardson from the Globe and Mail, the driving writer there. We're talking about the range of electric vehicles, some of the manufacturers' claims, and the reality out there on the road. Canada has a very aggressive target, Mark, as you know, to transition to electric vehicles here in the years ahead. What do you think about the capacity that we have right now in the country with the charging stations that we have in order to achieve this? I mean, we need a lot more electricity and a lot more charging stations to make this happen, do we not? Yeah, we do need to change our mindset, though. That's the thing. Mm. The, the idea is that for most people who would own an electric vehicle, they charge it at home overnight. You don't even think about right. it. You get home, and, and power is cheaper at nighttime. It's half the price of the daytime. You plug it in. You can even set your car so that it won't start charging until a certain time so it'll only charge when it's cheaper and you don't even have to think about it and then you've almost certainly got enough power to go wherever you want to go the next day and then you just do it all over again you just keep plugging it in overnight the trouble is that every now and again you do want to go more than that 300 or 400 kilometers in a day and also don't forget if you live in a condo and there are plenty of people downtown vancouver who live in condos and own Tesla, yeah. you have no way of charging your vehicle if you live on, in a house, a nice house, which doesn't have a garage, you've just got on-street parking, you've got no way to charge your vehicle. You have to go to a public place to do that. And then that becomes, that becomes difficult. That becomes onerous. And where the trouble is going to be is as we get more and more of these vehicles on the road and we have fewer charges per vehicle, uh, it's going to be messy when you know I'm busy there charging and somebody pulls up behind me and they want to charge and they got to wait for 20 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever. 
you're used to maybe waiting at a gas station for the pump to come free, which is going to happen in two or three minutes' time. That ain't happening with uh, with electric chargers, I'm afraid. Yeah. Hey, Mark, last question for you. When you do get behind the wheel, though, of these new sort of next-generation electric vehicles, is it a nice ride? Do you enjoy driving these vehicles? They're fabulous. They're fabulous, mm. Mike. They really are. They're, they're like... They're like quick golf carts, if you like, right? They don't have <laughs> gears. They have instant torque, instant power. They handle beautifully. The, the weight is all really low because the batteries have the weight, and they're all you know below your feet. So they handle beautifully, and they go like stink, and they're generally reliable and cheap to maintain. All of that stuff is there. The cars are there. It's the yeah. infrastructure that's lacking. Okay, we're following it closely. Great job on it, Mark. Thanks for coming on to talk about this today. Thanks, Mike. My pleasure. Huh?